you know, people spend the best 40 years of their life working five out of seven days plus. I think that eventually we'll come to view that as madness. I hope that in some time, begin to reframe what work is and what it means to live a worthy life. And I think we still equate hard work as this thing that is fundamental to a worthy life. And I'm not sure that's the case. version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Very thrilled to have you with us today for a conversation with a very dear friend of mine, Dr. Greg Shields. Uh, Greg is a consultant psychiatrist. He works with a nonprofit education foundation in the UK um, called the Mosley Learning, which is a mental health education and training organization. And he has a background that spans psychotherapy, uh, cancer and palliative care, as well as sort of teaching psychiatry and mental health globally. So he's quite an interesting guy, a bit of a renaissance man. And we're having him on the show today to have a conversation about mental health and well-being that tries to connect some of the dots in that intersection between the healthy me and the healthy we. What does it mean to not only live well, but die well. How could we put psychiatrists like him, if not out of a job, at least dramatically lessen the demand for their services? What was it like to be there as a support person for staff during the worst of the pandemic in a busy hospital in London? These and other things we get into in today's very thoughtful discussion. So I hope you enjoy it tremendously. And here is Greg Shields. Okay, Dr. Greg Shields, thanks for being here on The Remakers today. We've known each other for a very long time, and I've given our audience a little bit of an introduction about you, but would you mind introducing yourself for us and just telling us a little bit of your story, how you came to be doing the work that you do, and a little bit about you maybe outside of that work? My name's Greg Shields. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I feel very honored. Um, I'm a psychiatrist, uh, but I have a particular interest in medical education. I am usually based in the United Kingdom, although currently uh, in sunny Sydney at the moment. Um, my sort of two roles uh, most recently have been uh, one working in a haematology department with uh, people who have blood cancers and other sorts of blood disorders. So I have a particular interest in cancer and palliative care. Um, and my education role is with an organization called Maudsley Learning. We provide mental health education and training both within the public health system, but also um, to nonprofit organizations and really anyone else who wants to learn about mental health. And, uh, and we're based in London. How I got here, I was uh, born and, and raised in Australia 
and uh, moved to the UK about 12 years ago. So I, I completed my medical degree in Australia and then, then moved to the United Kingdom and have lived there ever since, other than this short sojourn to Australia. And uh, other than my sort of academic background, which started in arts and, and histories and moved forward into sciences and then finally uh, into medicine, where I thought I'd end up a pathologist, but eventually became a psychiatrist. Um, I, uh, I love travel. I've always loved culture. And I suppose psychiatry was a way of me fusing my humanities background with medicine and science. I suppose it was a sort of natural progression towards that for me. When I'm, when I'm not working, I am busy cooking, rock climbing, traveling. Traveling is probably my big focus in, uh, in my life and I've uh, spent a lot of my life either, uh, either traveling or thinking about traveling and uh, integrating that into my work life as well, which has uh, been a really uh, fantastic aspect of, of some of the work that I've done. And so I just wanted to sort of set the stage a bit by asking you, you know, I know why the work that you do matters to me. It's not my field of expertise, but mental health. I mean, you know, we all want to live well, we want to die well, we want to leave the world um, no worse or hopefully slightly better than we found it if we can, but also to experience love and joy and delight and comfort um, along the way for the inevitable pains of life. But I'm really curious about why this work matters to you and why you first became a psychiatrist. Yeah, there was a bit of a winding journey, um, much much like uh, the rest of my uh, my life story. I uh, well, I don't know where it goes back to. I could probably go back as far as my Steiner education, which was very uh, holistic and really encouraged um, intellectual inquiry, and and uh, unlike I think a lot of, sort of education systems, um, made space for things like art and philosophy and, and thought that wasn't just sort of career orientated. So I think that um, for me was a, has always stayed with me, something that led me in a direction that, that wasn't going to be a sort of purely sort of biomedical direction. Um, although psychiatry is not what I went into medicine to do, I actually was interested in, uh, in pathology. Um, but before that, I studied uh, languages and history. So I have an arts degree as, as well as a science degree. And, and so I guess I'd sort of followed my nose. I was lucky enough uh, to have two unlucky parents, I suppose, in the sense that they'd both been pushed into doing careers that they didn't enjoy. And so growing up, the message to me was always one of do what you love and and success or whatever whatever success means will follow and and whatever makes you happy is, is important and so I always did what I wanted to do and uh, really followed my own interest so I once I started medicine I, I quickly gave up the idea of doing um, pathology I think because ultimately I think the thing that really drives me is uh, complexity. I really find complexity interesting. So by the time I finished medical school, I, I was thinking I'd either want to be a neurologist, an immunologist, or a psychiatrist. And really, I was focused on immunology, uh, on sorry, neurology more than anything. And I think it's just a complexity of all of those disciplines and the uncertainty. For some reason, I like the sort of messy in-betweens. I'm not so big on binaries. I like that sort of uh, gray area in between. That's where I find I'm most intellectually stimulated. And 
in the end, after uh, finishing my university degree and my medical degree and then working in medicine, I just saw mental health everywhere. It didn't matter what rotation I was doing. It didn't matter whether I was doing surgical or medical or whatever or emergency. Mental health was everywhere and human behavior was everywhere. And I, I realized in the end that when things get interesting in neurology, they sort of palm them off on the psychiatrists and maybe that's where I wanted to be. So. I chose psychiatry and uh, Delia Lajade, who's a, a well-known psychiatrist from the Maudsley, um, where I trained, is probably responsible for me being uh, making the choice to be a psychiatrist. Now, I, I decided I'd give psychiatry a six-month go. So I took a six-month job um, in a place I'd never been before with a psychiatrist I'd never met. And it was probably a month into that job where I decided that that was where I was going to go and I was never going to leave. And so I remained in psychiatry ever since that time. And what was it about that job that had you so hooked? I love the experience of making something concrete and explicable out of something that seems so messy and inexplicable. And that's not to say that... There's an explanation for all human behavior, but you know, when I see a patient and I get to spend time with them and I get to know them and I really enjoy that process that, you know, human to human contact, I like being with someone, um, uh, in a way. And, you know, I, I use the term sort of being very deliberately, um, when I am with someone, when I'm with a patient and I'm curious about their life and I'm curious about their subjective experiences, but all the time I'm, you know, what they deliver is often not, here's a very linear narrative of my life and here's something that explains every aspect of my life. No one ever does that. Um, and if they do, you've got to, to worry. Um, you know, people tend to splurge out in relative degrees of mess and chaos. And what I love is being able to engage with that at a sort of human level and have a real conversation with someone, get to know someone, have them get to know me in, in a sort of professional sense. Um, but all the while, the sort of intellectual satisfaction is in breaking that chaos down into um, some, what we call in, in, in psychiatry or psychotherapy, a formulation, which is a sort of brief-ish explanation it's a statement of what the person's told you a sort of clarified statement of what the person's told you and some hypotheses around what might explain what they've told you and i love the process of doing that but i also love communicating that to someone else because you know I, people often sort of think that there's some great mystery in in being a therapist or a psychiatrist working in mental health and that there's some sort of mysterious skill, but 99% of it is just repeating back to someone what they told you already, and they somehow think that you're brilliant. And I really love that process. That's really satisfying. I like the reaction that people like to have the sense made out of their own chaos, and sometimes it's helpful to have someone else to do that for them. And I, I think that's something that I fundamentally enjoy. Sorry to interrupt you. I've heard therapy described as good editing. You know, like someone has their narrative of their life and a good therapist helps you kind of edit that narrative in a constructive and helpful way. And I think it just sets um, sets us up perfectly for what we're trying to do here today, which is, you know, go into complicated, nuanced things and connect and explain them. So thank you for being here. Um, let's just start with, you know, an easy topic, death. Uh, you have 
a lot of experience in supporting people through death and your own mother died of cancer when you were quite a young man, just entering university. And, you know, you've said uh, to me in the past, because we've known each other for a long time, that you don't think that hers was a particularly good death. And I was just really struck by that and struck by what you've learned since about what gets in the way of a good death and what a good death actually looks like? How can we try to foster that or support others through that as well as maybe prepare that for ourselves? Yeah. First, I'd like to just clarify a little. I think most of my work has been with people with life-threatening illnesses, not necessarily in the process of dying, although some of them have been. Um, but uh, my last few years have been working in a, in a hemato-oncology unit with, with people with hematological diseases like lymphoma and uh, and leukemia, and uh, and many people walked out cured at the end of it. So, uh, so not everyone I was working with uh, was necessarily dying, um, but all of them had some sort of life-threatening illness and were, were facing the threat of death. And and so death was was you know is often on our minds. It's on all of our minds. And uh, it's a slight segue, but I had a conversation with a friend the other day and we were talking about sort of what would happen if we were offered immortality. And, you know, it's highly hypothetical, but I don't think I would choose immortality. I think death, there, there being a finiteness to our existence creates meaning to the things that we do. Having limited time and limited opportunity, I think, for me at least, gives meaning to the things that I do and the way that I spend my time. And, uh, and so I think seeing death as uh, almost reframing death as a sort of positive thing uh, for me holds value. And, and then there's a question of, well, how to do death well? And I suppose part of my clarification is to say that death can be part of our conversations as people who are not being threatened by our own mortality, although we're all threatened by our own mortality, but it's not necessary to ignore the existence of death until we're facing it. And one of the things that I think would create good death is if we were all more comfortable talking about death in general, um, you know, whether or not we're facing our own death or someone else's death in, in the imminent future. Um, but to sort of hone in a little bit more so specifically on, on your question, because I realize I've skirted around it. Um, it's a big question, especially to launch you off early on. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is true. It's, Just explain uh, death to us and how to do it well. Go. Um, 30, second, uh, 30 second recap of death. Um, no, let's, let's treat it with, with due gravity. I, I think more than anything, and, and I think the – this also comes from my own personal experience with, with my mother's death. Um, people have this very powerful urge to deny things that they find unpleasant and, and not just death, but all sorts of things. And the, the power of denial is something that you can see again and again and again when you work in this sort of field um, in lots of different contexts. But death is probably the biggest one. And, um, and you hear people you know, refer patients to me sometimes and they say, oh, you know, they're in denial, they're in denial, the family's in denial. Uh, but there's huge nuances to that. You know, what are the motivations? Are people really in denial? Do people really not know that they might die? Of course, that's complicated. Um, no one who has a diagnosis of cancer doesn't, at some level, know that they are facing the possibility of death. Um, 
I think the people come to a realization about their own mortality in their own time, in their own way. But sometimes I think it's helpful for them to have some assistance around that. And that doesn't necessarily need to be professional assistance. Um, but that is to say that I, I think a good death is one in which there is communication between the family and the person who's dying in both directions. And I'll give you a little anecdote, um, which has replayed many, many times in, in my short career doing this. And that is the partner who says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling terrible, but I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to upset the other person. And the other partner sees me separately and says, oh, you know, I feel terrible, but I really don't want to upset the other person. So they end up in this sort of double bind where neither party wants to upset the other party and therefore neither of them ever talk about the things that actually would bring them much closer. When you're not talking about things, when you're both thinking something and not talking about it, it drives a wedge between you. And I see that happening so much. It unfolds between couples, it unfolds between, you know, within families. And so much of the time I'm there wanting to open up a dialogue. And this is, you know, I've, I've had this in my personal life as well as in, in my professional life where I've encountered people who are losing people or who are themselves dying and there's just no dialogue and everyone's trying to protect one another and actually they're hurting themselves and they're hurting each other. Which leads me to what I think is a really crucial thing. And if I imagine myself uh, dying would be really crucial for me is that feeling of being accompanied and, and one can be unaccompanied yet have someone, you know, someone can be in the room yet you can feel lonely or feel unaccompanied and to really be with someone, it comes back to the idea of being with someone, to be, really be with someone, there has to be some open communication. You have to be able to talk about what's happening. You have to be able to jointly acknowledge death or the possibility of death or suffering. And, and if you can't talk about those things, it, it can make for a very lonely end even with a group of people around you. And I think it's, that's crucial, not just for the person who is dying, but for the people who are left behind and perhaps more so for the people who are left behind. Because, you know, when my mother died, that presumably, at least within my belief system, was the end of her experience of, of life. But we all got left behind and the families all get left behind to continue on with that experience forever within them. And if that's a good experience, it leaves them with, with great memories and uh, I suppose a nicely resolved experience of, of losing that person. Um, if that is not a good experience, then that's something that will stay with them forever in one way or another and they will have to work through or not work through and will affect them in, in uh, I'm sure, in some way or another as certainly has been the case with myself. So opening the opportunity for people to really be together in the last period of life, I think is, is for me so important. The other thing about being accompanied, and this comes up again and again with people who have serious and life-threatening illnesses, is being accomp feeling accompanied by your healthcare professionals. And that might sound some, like something you should sort of take for granted, but a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses, a lot of healthcare professionals that be involved in, in the treatment of someone with cancer struggle to be with, 
with the patient, whether that's because of uh, something to do with their own difficulties in engaging with difficult emotions, or if it's to do with logistical restraints like time and busyness and that sort of thing, um, that can create a real sense in patients and families that they're not accompanied. And, you know, greatest fear, people's greatest fear is dying alone, dying in pain, dying, you know, nauseous or struggling to breathe. And we saw this a lot during the pandemic when the palliative care teams were so stretched, you know, particularly where I worked in England, when we had so many COVID patients, that they were sort of running from patient to patient and not really able to keep up with the, the demand for that end of life care. And I imagine a lot of people experienced feeling unaccompanied during their last, well, for people who are dying during the last, uh, last days of life, but also for people who are unwell in hospital who didn't die, but were left, you know, alone without being able to be, to receive visitors without really the nurses or the doctors having the time to spend with them. And, uh, and that, you know, for me, if I imagine that for myself would be a really traumatic experience and, and I suspect most people would say the same. So I think, you know, if anything, the short answer is a good death is an accompanied death. And, and a death where you're fully accompanied by people who are, are really there for you and able to be for you, there for you, not just in a physical sense, but in a, in a spiritual and emotional sense. I love that notion. And, um, you know, thank you for articulating it so beautifully. And I also think about how it applies to birth because we, you know, there's that sort of saying, well, you're born alone and you ultimately die alone. But actually, <laughs> You know, I haven't I haven't been through death, obviously, um, at least that I'm aware of in this body. But I've been through birth twice, and no one can do it for you. But you feel it when you are accompanied versus not, and you know what it is to be alone. And the thought of giving birth truly alone is quite terrifying. Um, I just, yeah, I think that's a really beautiful notion. And I was going to ask you about the pandemic and how you saw your fellow doctors and nurses and. Um, medical staff sort of from their side of things struggling to cope or not um, with that level of just death en masse and, and particularly under con viral conditions where people had to be in isolation and the families couldn't be there to hold their hands. That seems like the cruelest part. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I, I personally struggled with and, and still, you know, still makes me upset just to think about it. You know, the people there, lying in hospital at the best visited for half an hour a day and and we were only allowing that really for people who were were very clearly terminal there lots of people there that were suffering that didn't get visited and people weren't able to be visited in the intensive care so if they're on a ward they maybe could have been visited for half an hour um on you know every so often but but not on a daily basis so it was nothing like what a normal hospital environment would be. And a normal hospital environment is challenging to be sick in. It's challenging. It's a challenging place to die in. But this was extraordinary. One of the things that just really stuck with me was how much they cared for one another and how practically they treated their role. Um, I, I suppose that they, they approached it in a very practical, they approached their role in a very practical way. Um, did what they had to do and at the end of the day they were there for one another and that really stuck with me because i think that wouldn't be the same for all healthcare professionals i think there's something very particular about allied health and a very particular sort of person that that self-selects themselves into a, a role like physio or dietetics a speech therapy 
Um, but they faced death at a magnitude that I would never anticipate anyone um, outside of maybe palliative care face. So I remember one group, uh, a young occupational therapist who just graduated. So there were years, there's, there's been two years now of therapists who have graduated into this pandemic and their introduction to the world of working in a hospital is this. And I remember a young new grad saying to me that she, she'd left the hospital on a Friday and came back on a Monday and seven patients on her ward had died which is just an enormous amount of death to cope with. And, and she, was, she was upset and, and I was upset. I think everyone really empathized with what it would have been like to be even an experienced clinician and face that level of death, but to be someone who not really dealt with death um, at that level. And I think the other thing is that these allied health professionals, death is not something that, is generally on their radar. They're generally about recovery. <laughs> you don't go into physio to, uh, other than, than uh, our uh, dear friend, Anna, who's a palliative care physiotherapist. Um, most physiotherapists are there not to watch people die, but actually to help people out of, out of a period of illness. Um, so for them to really adjust to, to what they were experiencing, I think was a huge ask and one that they all did um, in various ways and I think we'll continue to do because I think in the midst of a trauma like that you don't do much adjusting you just sort of soldier on and you exhaust yourself and you do the processing afterwards and we use the group spaces to process everybody just a quick interjection to say if you're enjoying this conversation and want more head to australiaremade.org you can check out some of our written content you can subscribe for email updates you can also follow us along on social media the other thing i'll ask you to do is subscribe to follow the podcast and make sure that you don't miss a conversation the second nicest thing that you can do for the podcast is spread the word we are putting this out there through word of mouth rather than a big corporate advertising budget so we are really relying on people to help get these conversations about solutions and remaking the world that we want into the ears of all of the amazing leaders and people out there just like you thanks so much back to the show listening to um, a psychologist named Amy Cuddy and she was being interviewed on Brene Brown's podcast and she was talking about how there are three phases of crisis. Um, the surge phase where we're sort of all responding to the immediate threat and often in that period mental health can even go up because there's this shared sense of purpose and let's call this the we're all in this together phase of the pandemic. Then there's sort of the regression phase where we're just tired. We're just tired and we want to retreat to our corners and our comforts and whatever that looks like. And things are really frayed around the edges um, and society can look like it's kind of collapsing in a little bit on itself. 
And then ideally, we move from that into the rebuild phase where we sort of have this sense of agency again in our possibility to really move forward. And I was just wondering from your experience in psychiatry, does this sort of map to how an individual might recover from a crisis or a trauma? I know that's a very broad and general question and and maybe the answer is there's no one sort of trajectory that you can map across human experience in that way. But what would be the kind of conditions that help people move through into the next phase of that? Are there external or internal conditions that can help us to kind of move from, say, regression into rebuild? Because I think here in Australia, we're actually feeling a sense of rebuild at the moment. Like there is a sense of moving forward that is very positive. Um, And that can change if, you know, cases suddenly start to explode and we have to go back into lockdown and things like that. But I was just curious what you thought of that model and, and if you had any thoughts on it. Yeah, that those sort of three stages definitely accord with what I experienced or what I witnessed with the um, the staff support service at, at King's during that time, um, that initial sense of energy, and we're all in this together. That you know, we'll 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 fight this, um, but then gave way to exhaustion and a lot of other emotions, um, anger, anger and resentment were very common um that was often expressed and you know towards sort of hospital management um towards government towards you know members of the public not wearing masks there's a lot of a sense of there's this world out there that doesn't get what's happening in here and we're here dealing with this sort of horror situation and you know the government out there is just making these sort of arbitrary or stupid decisions or the management just isn't communicating with us or isn't caring for us um so uh, you know in in some way that's a way of sort of getting rid of those negative feelings uh, from a psychodynamic perspective you know we we think of sometimes sort of disowning feelings by changing them into something else and so you know we find, might feel someone who feels bad about themselves or the position they're in might sort of use anger at someone else as a way of sort of discharging those those emotions and that's not to say that some of their uh, anger was not um, justified, uh, but also that, that maintaining anger and resentment is a really exhausting process in and of itself. And, and so, yes, that's absolutely that second stage of exhaustion. Really, those emotions and that sense of tiredness was, was really there. In terms of rebuilding, um, it's so different for each individual. One of the things that that I imagine is going to be key is the rebuilding of trust, trust in the institutions that you work for and the institutions that, that run the country. Um, I don't know how that gets rebuilt. And I suspect everyone's journey is going to be different depending on their sort of own, in, own personal experiences of the pandemic, pandemic, but also their own personal life experiences. Um, so it's very hard to give us a singular answer to that um probably the only definite thing i can say is that it's going to take time and a lot of time i think that word trust is really key in that sense of you know the different psychology between um, a tough situation where you know that we're doing everything possible 
in a tough situation where it feels like it's a schmozzle and we're act- we're still actively making things worse. And, you know, that maps really well, for example, to climate change. And people are talking a lot now about climate grief and climate anxiety and climate despair. And, um, you know, we sometimes hear from leaders who would rather almost talk about the, you know, well, yes, we'd like to offer people mental health support. And, and I feel like what's being undermined is they're not addressing the core cause of the anguish, which is we're, we're not meeting this challenge the way that we need to. We're not throwing everything we can at it yet. And so, of course, I feel depressed and despairing. You know, if, if our country was being invaded, you wouldn't tell me to go sit on a couch and get therapy. You would have a plan to stop it. Um, and so, I kind of wanted to probe that intersection a little bit with you between sort of living well in in sort of difficult and unchallenging and uncertain times because sometimes it is hard to – we want to support people. Um, to as they face situations that um, potentially have elements of injustice, uh, bad decision making at the level of the larger society over which they have no control or the government or the whatever. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to sort of internalize it onto them or put it onto them in this atomized way and say, you know, you just need to go and be more resilient. Like you, you just need to go and get, and I think there's this kind of narrative in our sort of more individualist system where we've kind of privatized mental health in a way and said, if you're not happy, it's because you have something within you that you need to go and fix. And so kind of from your perspective, um, how do you try to navigate those waters of therapy? Do we need therapy or do we need structural change in some of these scenarios or is it both? You know, when you have people coming to you, because I know you do work with employers as well, and maybe they're facing chronic stress or burnout or do you sometimes feel like as a mental health professional, you've got your finger in the sort of dam and you're trying to, you know, or you're at the, you're at the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff? Like, how do you work within that? Totally. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a feeling that um, I, I suppose is familiar and one that could feel overwhelming, I suppose, as a practitioner. And I often, people often ask me, you know, how do you, how do you avoid taking home, you know, when you're hearing about all these awful things about people's lives, um, how do you avoid that affecting you? And, and, to be honest, it doesn't affect me. I have, and I think most mental health practitioners have good boundaries. Um, what makes me upset or when I get uh, annoyed or angry or frustrated is actually when there's system issues. When I see that someone might benefit from something, but it's not available to them for some reason or another. And that could be as simple as this person's in the emergency department and I think they need a hospital bed, but it's not available. Or it could be um, this form of psychotherapy isn't available for this person because they need to have self-harmed 10 times in the last six months, but they've only self-harmed seven times in the last six months. It's things like that that really frustrate me. And, and my focus, I always keep the focus on advocating for the individual and doing what I can to uh, support them and get them what I think is um, what, what I think might, or I never think definitely, but might be helpful for them. And through that focus, I try and overcome that frustration, um, or I, I, tr- I try and maintain a person-centeredness in my relationship with the, the patient that just allows, allows me to work within the system that, that's provided to me. Um, 
Otherwise, we can end up in a situation where we're just constantly beating our head against or railing against a system, which I think is exhausting. Again, that's that um, feeling of perhaps that internal feeling of helplessness, which can turn into anger or resentment. And, and you you can turn into one of those people who sort of is always uh, managing one's own sense of helplessness by blaming the government or blaming external things. Now, that's to speak to my own sort of internal coping mechanisms around uh, my frustrations and sometimes wanting to help people better or more. Um, but to go back to the question about structural change versus individual change, if we could eliminate poverty and child trauma of all kinds, then I expect that would be a far higher yield in reducing mental health burden, mental burden, mental illness than paying me to go into work every day. Um, so it, you're it saying let's put like, you out of a job, you know, basically. Let's put, me, let's put me out of a job. If you, if you can eliminate poverty and uh, child, early childhood trauma, then I will happily retire and, uh, and you know, spend the rest of my time in the forest somewhere taking photographs. Um, but I, I, and I say this sort of tongue-in-cheek leap, but the reality is there are a lot of common risk factors for mental illness. A lot of them are related to early life experience. A lot of almost all mental illnesses uh, have uh, an association with um, with poverty, socioeconomic deprivation, and so we know that the social experience, uh, the early, the formative social experience, is one that contributes strongly to the development of mental illness. Um, and so, and I don't think that should be neglected in favour of a more individualistic approach, because the individualistic approach says, "What can we do now with this adult?" When, when we haven't asked, well, what can we do to support these families, these children, these schools? And I know there's a lot of initiatives. Things are getting better um, in terms of early childhood sort of mental health care and school-based mental health care, but I think there's a long way to go. The other question then is about our structures now, like our government, our institutions, our workplaces, and all these things around us, um, and what responsibility they take for people's mental health care and I, I think there is a, a balance a sort of seesaw balance between people's individual resiliences and coping mechanisms and the institutions and it's incumbent upon institutions to make changes that promote the mental health and the well-being of, of the people within them um, but there are things that the individuals can do for themselves the degree to which that one or the other should be present, uh, I think it's very hard to, to make generalizations about. But one of the things I think that is really reassuring, for example, and has been a positive of the, the COVID pandemic is, for example, flexible working. You know, if people can work flexibly around their lifestyle, and they can do that now in a way that they've never been able to do. And hopefully that will be maintained and hopefully that will then have downstream effects on, on people's sense of well-being. Um, at least with regards to their, their work life. And it's like you said right at the top um, when you said that you're not into binaries. I mean, it doesn't – we sort of talk a lot at Australia Made about a sort of both-and view in, of the world. And so, yes, it's important to, like, look upstream and try to solve 
problems at the level of structural change, or at least change the structural conditions rather than just pull people out of the river who are drowning all the time without sort of asking why. But to the people drowning, it's really bloody important that there's someone there um, to help pull them out if they can. And, um, you know, I'm curious uh, in some of the work that you've done with employers and organizations who are taking an interest now in things like mental health for day, first aid at the workplace and uh, mental health support and well-being programs um, that they can offer at the level of, of their sort of organizations. Have you ever had an experience of feeling like you are being brought in as a, just a little bit of a box ticking exercise? Or do you feel like most employers are actually quite sincere in you know, wanting you to come in or, you know, someone like you, not just because they want nice little compliant, productive employees who don't need pesky things like lunch breaks, but because they actually are trying to sort of do the right thing by their staff. I, there's certainly a mix of, of both of those things in the people who are genuinely wanting to do something there's often misconceptions um, or a naive idea that perhaps some sort of one-hour mandatory training thing will make people more resilient. Um, Which is a word you've come to hate, by the way. Can you tell us why, or at least be a bit skeptical of? Be be skeptical of because it, you know I don't I don't hate the word resilience. We we all have the capacity for for resilience, and we all have factors within us that make us resilient. Uh, one of my favorite quotes comes from an Arrested Development song called uh, Fishing for Religion. And, uh, and the quote is, the word cope and the word change are directly opposite, not the same. And, and that to me it really cuts to the core of what the issue is. And when someone comes and says, look, we've got difficulties in our workplace and we want, um, we want something, we want some sort of mental health training to improve those. Often my question is, well, what's your willingness to change or what's your willingness or capacity? Because sometimes it might be that a manager very much cares about their staff, but has absolutely no power whatsoever to change the way in which their staff work or, or the, the, the flexibility of the workplace. Um, but if they really want to make a difference, um, then giving people free yoga classes and doing a one hour course on mental health awareness is not going to be the thing that, that makes a fundamental difference. Um, so what is their willingness to change? And, and so that people can cope more so that coping and changing sit in a bit of a balance with one another and that individuals can be encouraged to improve their resilience by an environment which encourages that resilience. And there were, are workplaces that are doing that. I've got a couple of friends that are working for, for Apple and, you know, I don't, I'm not advertising Apple. I don't use any Apple products, but they seem to have a really supportive, caring, flexible approach to, uh, to their employees and, and employees, at, at, you know, from, from the shop level up. And so that's, doable. You can still be a multi-billion dollar multinational company making loads of money and care for your employees. And I think if that model can work in Apple, it can work in other companies. It's something that can be replicated and can stand as a, a model um, to aspire to. I'm not saying that their system is perfect. I don't really know that much about their system, but I know that people that work there are, are happy with it and they have opportunities to do things that um, a lot of people in other workplaces wouldn't. 
So how willing is a workplace to make those sorts of changes? One of the things, one of my reactions uh, is usually to sort of turn around and say, well, we can offer you some mental health training, um, but what about some sort of more broad consultancy on workplace well-being to think about what sort of structural changes could be made to your organization to improve that? What sort of things could you implement? And that's a bit of a test of people's willingness to make substantial change. If someone just wants to pay a bit of money and get a mandatory training course, then they'll either disappear or they'll be honest. Most people won't be honest and say, look, we just want this mandatory training course. Most of them all want to pretend yeah, to be We need genuine. to tick a box. This will do we it. We need to t- tick a box. And, you know, it's very rare that someone's totally direct about that and says, yep, yeah, just want to tick a box. Will you do it for me? <laughs> <laughs> I remember an early job I had, a um, very, very stressful campaigning job. And we were a very small team. We didn't have a lot of money. And so um, my manager got his naturopath to come in and lead us on a half an hour guided meditation as like this intervention for my staff are incredibly stressed. They're run off their feet. And all I remember was sitting there, I was like 22 or something at the time, madly typing away, trying to meet some deadline. And there's this naturopath looking over at me quizzically with some sense of pity, you know, looking at the um, stash of sugar that I had on my desk and caffeine to just try to like get through the day, urging me to close down my laptop and come over and do this guided meditation. And I just wanted to tell her to get stuffed, you know, and she was this lovely woman, like it wasn't her fault, but it was just so incredibly inadequate to the conditions at hand. What we needed was 10 more staff. Um, but, you know, he was, I think he was sincere at the time in, in sort of trying to do what he could. But the result of that is invalidation. And I think people feel invalidated by that. If you're working till 10 o'clock at night because of deadlines and lack of staffing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and someone offers you a half an hour yoga session, then uh, you know, unless there's some conversation about changing the workplace environment, it's completely invalidating. I think it's crucial to acknowledge that and and crucial to to acknowledge that with employers in in a really sort of honest way. Yeah. You know, I I love this quote from Martin Luther King in a speech that he gave, um, urging people to remain maladjusted to injustice. And this was at a time, you know, the 50s and 60s, psychology was kind of on the rise. um, And this sort of, it was the first time that we were sort of really publicly talking about what it meant to be a well-adjusted member of society. And Martin Luther King was saying, well, there are things that are perfectly healthy to be maladjusted to. And, you know, primarily, of course, he was talking about racial injustice. But I wonder what future generations of mental health professionals are going to look back on our time and think, ah, how curious that they expected people to be well-adjusted to that. That, like, a healthy response is not to be well-adjusted to that. Yeah, I mean, rather than mental health professionals, because I like to think that the mental health profession almost a sort of echo of society's values and views um, in the same way as sort of politics perhaps, um, and that it moves with, with society's uh, viewpoints. And, and so maybe another question is, well, what why might we as a society view differently? Because that's probably not going to be so different from what, what mental health professionals might view differently. I suppose one of the things that I am reassured by is our capacity to change some of those things and change them quite quickly. Uh, one of the things that really stands out for me as an example of of that is sort of ideas around masculinity and uh, there's lots of talk about toxic masculinity and and 
issues to do with sexuality. And in my relatively short but not so short lifetime, I've seen these things change dramatically and I've seen communication around those things change dramatically, both in the public sphere and in the private sphere. And, and so I think we as a society can be optimistic about our capacity to change some of these things. Um, so what are the things that aren't changing that, uh, that I think we will look back on? One of the things that I personally reflect on a lot is the position of work in life. And, and I really feel like the preceding generations have had a sense of a lack of agency over their own destiny. And, and I spoke about it before when I talked about, you know, my parents being sort of forced into jobs they didn't like. And the flip side of that being me being given these sort of role model, negative role models of what not to do. And, and, you know, to my parents' credit, all this encouragement to do what I wanted and, and to follow my heart. Um, and from that has also come this sort of understanding of, of work as not being something that um, should define your whole life. I think it still is for most people, in certainly in Western cultures and probably in, in most cultures. And, and it, I'd have to acknowledge the privilege position that it is to be able to think of work as being one part but not all of your life because a lot of people don't have that uh, privilege. But there's lots of people with plenty of money and plenty of resources for whom work still dominates their lives. And I think about the you know, our, our father's generation who are retiring with you know, no social network, no hobbies, all they've done is work their whole life. Um, spent the best, you know, people spend the best 40 years of their life working five out of seven days plus. I think that eventually we'll come to view that as madness. I think that um, mental health professionals will probably follow, follow suit, but I think, you know, psychiatry and, and the way in which we view mental illness is a reflection of the way society views mental illness. We're always working within a context and it's relative and it changes as well. So I, I hope that in some time, hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll begin to reframe what work is and what it means to live a worthy life. And I think we still equate hard work as this thing that is fundamental to a worthy life. And I'm not sure that's the case. If you're a fantastic artist and all you do is live on a pittance and paint amazing paintings that bring people happiness and you only paint one of them a week or one of them a month, then, then maybe that's good enough. I don't know. Um, it's a very sort of off the top of the head uh, example. No, I, it's I, beautiful. I, it actually relates to an example Millie gave on the podcast last time where um, the Irish government is trialing a universal basic income for artists as just to, you know, and imagine investing, imagine parents being able to say to their children, Yes, you can be an artist and that's, you know, that's actually a valuable, valid path. You don't just have to be the one in a million who makes it in order not to starve because we've come to a point as a society where we're prosperous enough, where we can have policies and systems and structures in place that invest in things like art and creativity as a matter of course. Absolutely. But ironically or paradoxically, there's a move against the soft subjects and in academia um, because they're not seen as sort of vocational. You can see arts funding, um, funding for arts departments and history departments, humanities departments and universities, certainly in Australia, has been cut viciously over the last few decades because of, I don't want to sort of start bringing in 
my uh, sort of socialist leanings here, but because of the capitalist model of, I mean, we see this everywhere. We see it in education. We see it in healthcare. We see things that can be measured as profitable or making ends meet. That those, those are the sole values by which we judge those things, whether it be a mental health service that provides some sort of psycho- psychological therapy that maybe doesn't have a huge cost benefit ratio associated with it, or whether it's an art, you know, art history department in a university in Sydney or wherever, um, that model of, of sort of free market capitalism has left us in a position where we've devalued these things when we're at the point in the world where there is actually so much surplus that we should be able to value those things. Absolutely. Now you're singing my song here. Um, I, I agree. It's, it is very, it's reductive is the right word, you know, to, to sort of take all of human experience and value and assign it a sort of production or consumption dollar figure um, as though we're just widgets in a factory that need the right amount poured into us so that we can be stamped and sent off on our merry way to, you know, go be productive citizens for the economy is, is it is very dehumanizing. I and mean, I hope we will kind of move past that. I could talk to you for another three hours and luckily we're friends. So I get to actually talk to you again um, without mics on, but I, I just wanted to say you've given us so much to think about and, uh, just to kind of land the plane a little bit on this conversation, that we might pivot to some lighthearted rapid fire questions that we like to ask um, the guests on the show when we can. And your answers can be big, they can be little, they can be serious, sweet, funny. Um, but the first one is simply, what is something making life better for you right now? Well, being in Australia, having come from a long time in England, sunshine and nature is definitely the thing that's making my life better right now. Yeah, we will continue to claim our sunshine. <laughs> I'll take some back <laughs> if I can. pride of thing over England. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's something you've changed your mind about recently? Which side of the planet I want to live on um, seems to be changing pretty rapidly at the moment. So uh, at the moment, I'm looking forward to going back to England. But after three months, ask me again. All right, I will. What's something people get wrong about you? People think that I'm always calm. And people think that I'm not spiritual. I think both those things are wrong for different reasons. Mm-hmm. That could be a whole other podcast, but we're out of time. Um, and what is a book, a podcast, film, TV show, something that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I've just binge watched Only Murders in the Building, which is a fantastic uh, comedy. Martin Short, Steve Martin, Selena Gomez based in an apartment block in New York um, around the creation of a podcast, very topical, the creation of a true crime podcast and the events surrounding it. And it is hilarious. It's brilliantly designed. It's beautiful. And the acting is fantastic. And it's full of, full of actors we would all recognize and have come to know and love. And it's great to see Steve Martin doing something. Uh, which I haven't seen him uh, doing a TV series for a long time. So I really recommend that you get into that. But do it when you've got the time to binge it because you'll want to. <laughs> Excellent. We will put the link there for people who want to check it out in the show notes. Um, Dr. Greg Shields, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an absolute delight. You've given us lots to think about and um, we look forward to having you back on the show another time soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
So here are some of my notes from that conversation. And the first is really simple. Mental health is everywhere. Human behavior is everywhere. Number two, sometimes we need a good editor in the story that we've narrated of our lives and someone to just help us make sense of the chaos. Number three, immortality, if such a thing exists, would probably be awful. A certain finiteness to our existence lends meaning to the choices that we make. Number four, a good death, where possible, is an accompanied death, where there's good communication flowing from all sides and you don't feel alone. Number five, in the midst of a crisis, we soldier on and exhaust ourselves. It's afterwards where we do the processing. Which brings us to number six, to move from the regression into the rebuild phase of a crisis, for one thing, requires trust. Number seven, we've largely privatized mental health, making it individuals' problems to solve. But we can be the people of both and. Eliminating poverty and childhood trauma, supporting families and schools, as well as being there for adults. Number eight, workplaces are taking mental health more seriously, and that is great. But a one-hour training or yoga session is not going to do the job in the absence of actual structural support or change. It just leaves people feeling invalidated. Number nine, like politics, mental health reflects and changes with the norms of society. So will one day defining ourselves primarily by work or proving our worth by working hard seem really strange? And finally, number 10, a value system based on profit really devalues many of the things that we need most. But the good news is we're at a point of incredible surplus and we can make other choices. That's all for today's show. Thank you so much for listening and spreading the word. We will be back next time for our final Remakers episode of 2021 with ever delightful Millie Rooney. And we're going to be talking about what we have learned this year. Thanks so much, everybody. See you next time over on the Remakers. been the remakers a podcast by australia remade we celebrate aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be australian that is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth i record this podcast from dara country which is just north of sydney i want to pay my deepest respects to elders past present and emerging on this land I also want to thank my collaborator-in-chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson, and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.